Welcome, everybody, to the Powers That Be Daily Pucks podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I am Teddy Schleifer. It is Thursday, August 4th. And today, Dylan Byers is here to answer a big question. Whether or not CNN, and frankly, the entire media establishment, can ever win over the GOP voters who today think they're all fake news. And later on, Tina Wynn is here with Ben Landy. Tina and Ben will talk about this Tuesday's election results and whether or not Trump got more wins or more losses. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. We are here today with Dylan Byers to talk about the media coverage of Washington and all things CNN. Hey, Dylan. How you doing, Teddy? I'm well. Um, Dylan, CNN, uh, as you've written about a lot, uh, is a fascinating business story. It's also, uh, sometimes we, we forget that sort of what, what's happening in the foreground of CNN, which is just the day-to-day active journalism. And you have a new story up this week looking at how that journalism is being reimagined under Chris Licht, the new head of the network, and sort of what he's telling people privately in Washington. Um, you write about the sort of pilgrimages he's been making from New York to D.C. to, I don't know, I don't know if it's a listening tour or if it's a charm offensive. Yeah, olive brand. <laughs> choose your euphemism here. What is he telling people, Republicans specifically, about how he wants to cover the GOP? Yeah, well, look, I, I think what he's trying to impress upon Republicans. So he went to the Hill last month. He met with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, including Republican leadership. And what he's trying to convince them is that despite the reputation that CNN has built on the right as a sort of anti-Trump, anti-conservative, grandstanding opinionation machine during the Zucker era, the anti-Trump era, that that is not what his CNN will be and that he intends, as he's said many times in town halls and public statements, for CNN to be nonpartisan, nonpolarizing, that basically represents the broad swath of political opinion that exists in this country. Needless to say, that is a hard argument to make. And, and, and it's been a hard argument for CNN to make for a very long time. And in fact, what I found out in the course mm. of reporting this piece is that more than 20 years ago, when Walter Isaacson was the head of CNN, he was the head of CNN for, I think, two to three years, uh, notably during September 11th. But right before September 11th, he made a similar pilgrimage to Washington, D.C. to convince skeptical conservative lawmakers that they, too, would get a fair hearing on CNN. Mm -hmm. If it was hard for Walter Isaacson to do it then, which in the, you know, sort of like relatively peaceful, rosy kumbaya days of 
the very early years of the George W. Bush administration, it seems like it's all but impossible to do that now after everything that's transpired in the era of Trump. Right. I think what I find so notable about this effort is that I don't doubt that Chris Licht is genuine in his desire to make this happen. And he's it's certainly something that's happening in large part because this is what David Zaslav and the powerful shareholder John Malone want to see out of CNN. What's noticeable to me is that this seems to be actually his only real mandate, right? David Zaslav has said he's not concerned about the ratings, and Chris Licht has echoed that in talking to staff. Zaslav has said that he he sees CNN as a reputational asset in the Warner Brothers mm-hmm. Discovery portfolio. It seems like the ratings isn't the chief preoccupation. It's not even clear to me that, like, growing revenue is the chief preoccupation. It seems like the chief preoccupation is making CNN a sort of pristine brand known for the integrity of its journalism that can mm-hmm. become a value add in the streaming services that that Zaslav wants to sell consumers come the day that he actually wants to sell the company itself. A global news network with a reputation for nonpartisan journalism can be a significant differentiator. The problem here, of course, goes back to what I was saying, which is that this is a really hard thing to do in the era of Trump and Fox News and at a time when an overwhelming majority of Republican voters don't even accept the legitimacy of the last presidential election. So I wish Chris the best, but like, forgive me if I'm a little skeptical about whether or not he can actually achieve that. Is there any distinction you think that's made in kind of political circles between like what happens on actual television and like the news gathering operation. I'm wondering when we say CNN, what do we mean by that? Sure. Well, I and, and this is what anyone who is who has run CNN or worked at CNN at, at the highest levels of the organization will tell you is like day in and day out, what the vast majority of what you see on our airwaves, in addition to the vast majority of the work that the editorial teams do is straightforward journalism and has sort of always been straightforward journalism and is about just like the, the you know, raw news gathering and contextualizing events and, and reporting back and getting scoops. The problem is, is that in an era of polarization in the media, you don't necessarily get to define your reputation. And in fact, what ends up defining your reputation are the most sort of bombastic, outspoken things that your top talent says on air. And as much as CNN continued to largely be a pretty straightforward news organization, even in the Zucker-Trump era, Zucker certainly encouraged his talent and his his on-air talent to, to speak out more forcefully against what they saw as abuses of truth or democracy or civility. And that has created a climate in which Republican lawmakers, or at least the the most conservative Republican lawmakers, don't want to go on air and don't want to go on CNN. You've written ad nauseum about like the ratings of CNN. Yeah, you know, we're talking about one or two million people watching. You know, I mean, right now in prime time, in prime time, it's averaging something like six hundred to seven hundred thousand viewers. Okay, even worse. Not in the demo. That's total. <laughs> so, to what extent is this just like a rational? Is it like totally rational? You know, for Republicans to avoid CNN. 
And I understand, you know, it's Chris Lick's job to try to like, you know, make it sound like you got to be on CNN, Marco Rubio. You and really got to be on CNN. Right, and you don't. Uh, I mean, like, I don't know if you really do. No, you don't. First of all, the, the vast and overwhelming majority of conservatives and Republican voters don't trust CNN and don't watch CNN to begin with. If you are a conservative politician, policymaker, there are myriad ways to shape the narrative and get your message out and circumvent CNN. Certainly Fox News, the most watched, not just the most watched cable news network, but one of the most watched television networks, period, is an extremely powerful and, if you subscribe to conservative orthodoxy, a very forgiving platform for you. There's no real incentive here to go on CNN. We are long past the days politically where you felt like, you know, you had to. You had to. Like, the, you know, remember, remember when a politician felt like it, like going on something like Meet the Press or Face the Nation was something that they had to do because that those were the credible organizations. And, and if you wanted to get your message out or you wanted to drive the week, you had to go. That That's not the world we live in anymore. And so it's a really hard uphill battle for Chris Licht to try and turn down the temperature, tone down the rhetoric of CNN, get away from that polarizing opinion and attract more conservative viewers at a time when like conservative lawmakers don't really need CNN. Right. And then if they're not going to go on CNN, why is the Republican voter going to really pay attention to what's happening on CNN? As a citizen, I really, really want this CNN to exist. The one that Chris Licht and David Zaslav and John Malone talk about. I actually do. As a sort of, you know, student of the, of the industry and as, as someone who covers it, I don't see the opening. You know, earlier when you were starting to talk about talent, this is actually the fundamental thing. Like, the, what, what is going to make people watch CNN is compelling television. It's not actually a hard formula. You have to have somebody who captures the zeitgeist for a certain sector of the population and becomes compelling programming. And as everyone sort of knows or should have figured out by now, it's really hard to find those people, right? The Rachel Maddows are rare. The Tucker Carlson's are rare. If you want to think about the, the history of CNN, like the Larry Kings are rare. Right. People who people are actually like, you know what? I got to watch that show tonight. And right. And CNN doesn't really have that person. And I, you know, I, lo I love Anderson Cooper. I love, you know, I like Don Lemon. Like, but no, these people don't really exist on CNN in a way that really drives ratings and, and drives engagement. And that is a fundamental problem if you're trying to reposition CNN in the way that Chris Licht is trying to do. Dylan, on that note, as we bid Chris Licht well, but. Uh, it seems like you and I are both skeptical that no matter what words he says, and he's sort of fighting against strong headwinds, fundamentals, <laughs> strong headwinds that he's not going to be able to shake. Yeah. All right, Dylan, take it easy. Thanks, man. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, the gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. 
Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy. And eating better is easy with Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are are pancakes i love pancakes more than waffles more than french toast a couple of my favorites so far the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites i love egg bites discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast midday bites and more no prep no mess meals factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed so sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Tina Wynn to talk about the GOP primary results that we saw come in Tuesday night. Some pretty momentous and really interesting outcomes there. Tina, what was the result on Tuesday that stuck out to you the most? Well, there are two that really kind of drew my attention. One was the success of Trump's election denialism candidate slate, both in Arizona and Michigan. So um, in Arizona, you had an election truther win the um, governor nomination, the Senate nomination, the secretary of state nomination. And then a couple of other down-ticket races, but those are the big three that I was looking at. You know, those Arizona candidates you mentioned are Blake Masters, who came in with the GOP nomination for the Senate. That was Mark Fincham, the election denier, who was Trump's pick for Secretary of State, a guy who also has an affiliation with the Oath Keepers group, I believe. And then Carrie Lake, who looks like she is probably going to beat Karen Taylor Robson, who was the candidate for governor backed by Mike Pence. Right. The thing with Arizona, you have to understand, is that out of all of the stop the steal states, Arizona seems to be the hotbed of election denialist conspiracy theories. And you saw that from like night one after the election, where this thing called Sharpie Gate emerged, where um, a group of election doubters and conspiracy theorists latched onto the fact that some ballots in Maricopa County were marked over with Sharpie. And they're like, oh my God, this totally could mean that there's a uh, discrepancy in how the votes were counted. And then from there, it just sort of snowballed into Maricopa County's the home of these election conspiracies. Look at all these Democrats, governors, and secretaries of state trying to take the election back for Joe Biden. I can't believe that Fox News called the election for Biden before anyone else did. So you have to really look at Arizona as the ground zero for election conspiracies in America. When you have that background, it makes a lot of sense that the Republican Party in that state is overtaken by the conspiratorial crowd. 
Is the Arizona Republican obsession with election denialism over 2020 specific to that state? Like, is Arizona sort of an exception that GOP operatives are looking at, or do they see it as sort of a early indicator of the kind of tactics that might succeed in other states? It's increasingly becoming clear that, at least in this election, it's been pretty potent. You've seen similar results happen in Nevada, where the Secretary of State is now an election denialist. Pennsylvania, where Doug Mastriano, who's running for governor, is, he was literally at the Capitol on January 6th. And um, in Michigan, John Gibbs versus Peter Mayer. Mayer is a um, first-term freshman congressman who voted to impeach Donald Trump after January 6th. John Gibbs, obviously he had the platform of, we need to get this traitorous impeacher person out of Congress. He also ran on the platform that Joe Biden lost 2020. So at the very least, you're seeing this as a good way for Republicans to get out the vote and for Trump to win primaries if he decides to run on this again in 2024. Whether that's going to win general elections is still really up in the air. I mean, these are states with Democrats in office and Democrats who will be challenged by these guys. So the question is, are they savvy enough to dial back on election denialism going into the general election? Or have they just committed themselves too hard to this and any sort of step backwards will be viewed as some sort of abdication of their true cause by the diehard believers in MAGA? What was the biggest surprise for you on Tuesday night? And and what's got GOP operatives and the professional class talking? I was genuinely really shocked by how wide the margin was in Kansas's um, abortion referendum. I think as of now, the ticket splitting on that kind of stood out to me. So right now in uh, Kansas, the no vote, as in we don't want to amend the state constitution to get rid of abortion protections, a little convoluted, but that's typical for these things. The vote to enshrine that right outstripped the yes vote by like 22, 23 points. And when I was looking at the breakdown county by county, it's kind of surprising how much better no performed than Joe Biden did in counties that supposedly were super pro-Trump. Like going into that race, the benchmarks for the no campaign were, all right, Joe Biden got 41% of the vote in 2020. What we need in order to win is for the no vote to perform 10 points better than he did in all these counties. Regularly, you were seeing like 15, 20% overperformance. So in that race, you saw a lot of people who would have voted for Trump in 2020 also say, by the way, I'm a Republican, but I really do not want to get rid of abortion rights in our state. So that combined with the fact that this was, there was just like monster turnout in this race. No one's ever seen like these numbers for a primary. This could be an issue that galvanizes voters and gets them to the ballot box in the general election in November more than the Republicans had hoped it would be. Like everyone I was talking to prior to this was fairly sure that they could easily campaign on things like inflation, the economy, looming recession. But despite all of that, Kansas came out to vote. Kansas came out to vote to protect that. So 
I would be really interested to see how the Republicans respond to that. Yeah, this is the first time we had sort of a perfect laboratory experiment where voters had a strict up or down referendum vote on the question of whether to keep access to abortion in the Constitution. I suppose the, the real question is, what happens, to your point, when protection for abortion is paired with a host of other issues? Where does that weigh in voters' decision-making matrix? Do they decide that inflation and the economy, cancel culture, whatever is top of mind for them, takes precedent over the protection of abortion? Or does that lead them away from the Republican candidate to a Democrat? Considering the level of extremist candidates that are starting to pop up in the Republican Party, I would say that, like, barring everyone deciding to turn into Susan Collins, you're going to see a whole bunch of recalcitrant uh, Republicans not back away from this position because that's what extremist candidates do. Thanks, Tina. That's fascinating. Well, we will be watching to see what happens with all of this, and I'll talk to you next week. You too. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.